Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for tuning in to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and I'm very excited to have on the show, on the other side of the mic, the dynamic duo of Chris Madden and, of course, Christine Brown. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to join us to talk about everything that's going on at Floor and the wild world of NFTs. But before we dive into that and more, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This show is sponsored in part by CleanSpark, America's Bitcoin miner. With CleanSpark, you can feel good about investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem because CleanSpark uses low-carbon energy for their Bitcoin mining data centers and is always optimizing their operations to increase energy efficiency and reduce e-waste, all while partnering with the communities they operate in. If you want to support the future of Bitcoin while also supporting the environment, visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more about the CleanSpark way. Christine, you were always a big fan of NFTs, but you've become ultra NFT-pilled on Twitter. So walk us through sort of like the origin story of the firm and, you know, how we sort of got to this point. Yeah, uh, I can jump in. So Floor was really born out of just how hard it was for us to get into NFTs in the first place. And so we really believe that the intersection of culture, community, and tokenization is where the future of the internet is and where the most exciting things over the next 10 years are going to happen. And we think the NFTs represent the kind of very early today form of that, but that it's so hard to get it. It's so hard for like, get the Fox app, get your Elite Fit on custodial wallet, like figure out what community you might want to be part of, you know, what's going to rug you, what's not like all of those problems that you hear about all the time. Mm-hmm. But there's germ of something really beautiful here and something really powerful here. And so our goal is just get as many people involved and included in that as we can. Even better if we can get folks that don't look like what you typically see as the early adopting communities, like typically very male, typically very financially privileged, and help them get in and understand early to what we think is going to be an important part of the future of the internet. And so Floor in its current form is an app that helps you understand NFTs, both your NFTs, the communities behind NFTs, and kind of the world of NFTs more broadly. And I met Chris when I was at Robinhood. So I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to run the crypto business there for about two years. We see millions of users, you know, buy crypto for the first time through Robinhood's, you know, centralized platform, mostly Doge, and learned a lot through that. Mostly, you know, reduce financial friction to get started, you know, put it in their pocket and make it culturally relevant, right? Like Dogecoin is a meme, but it's approachable and accessible because it doesn't have a white paper and it's not some secret founder, you know, on a blog somewhere telling you what's going on. It's a meme. It's really accessible. So when we started thinking about Web3 and NFTs, I went out looking for who was the product builder in the space doing this the best right now and came across Floor and couldn't quite convince Chris to jump ship and join me, but he did a good job of doing the inverse. (laughs) That must have been a funny conversation. How did you convince her? Honestly, I felt like an idiot for asking because like she had this Big cushy fancy job, and I was just like some guy on the internet. Cushy is a to, strong word. <laughs> trying to build something, and I was it's like, like well, my I'm job like, was I'm... tough. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's all relative. I have the cushiest of jobs. From my perspective at the time, it looked pretty, pretty, pretty cushy. Yeah. And I was, and I was like, hey, like, why is this person like spending so much time talking to me and like giving me advice and like. Yeah, at one point there was like a deck of like, here's some advice I have on like building support and operations. 
And I was like, I wonder if there's like any chance at all she'd be interested in working on this. And so I was just like, uh, sorry if this is a dumb question, but any chance? And she was like, wow, if you're serious, maybe. It's like, okay, great, let's go. Don't give away your negotiating position all at once. So what do you think the state of the market is for NFTs right now? Obviously, you know, transactions are relatively low when compared to the Pico top. Interest is waning. What do you expect will maybe reignite the engine? I think with all things in crypto, like all markets in general, highly cyclical. And yeah, I think we can all say we got to a place where prices were not in any way reflective of value or really anything sensible rooted in utility or literally anything. And so as people who believe in the space long term and here now, like, honestly, I'm super happy to see that prices are down 70, 80, 90%, because like, I think we can all say a picture of a monkey. I don't know if that's worth a quarter of a million dollars or half a million dollars or a million dollars. And so we've definitely seen that happen. And I think we have seen a reduction in attention because of that. You know, a lot of it was like highly sensational attention where it's like, wow, maybe I can make a million dollars tomorrow. And so you get a lot of that kind of short-term interest. I think there still is a lot of folks around in the space. So one of the interesting things that we see as floor being non-transactional is the attention that's being spent on the space versus the amount of on-chain transactions. So during that same period where we've seen, yeah, like a 70% reduction in the full prices of most collections, we've seen 70, 80% reductions in on-chain transactional volume, we've actually seen a 200% plus increase in the number of users that are checking in every day to understand what's happening in those communities, to understand what's happening kind of more generally in the space. And so I think while measuring in kind of pure financial volume, which is how historically we've thought of NFTs, the numbers are all pretty down. In terms of actual like interest and engagement, we're seeing a lot of growth, even while the actual numbers are going down. Growth in terms of just new projects coming online? At Floor, we have seen recently like 50% month over month growth of users coming onto the platform and using it to stay connected with their NFTs without having to be like connected to their NFTs. And I think that what you're getting at is transactional volume and trading is one way to measure success in the space. I think that as we move away from NFTs primarily being speculative assets and more towards like, hey, you can do a thing with this. It is a membership pass. It is something that you get utility from. It is your ticket to an event. It won't be so much trading that will define the market. It'll be usage and utility of these tokens. How would you describe the engagement in various communities? To what degree is that engagement connected to price? Do you see people still interested in the communities of projects that are down horrendously? You know, when I think about all my NFTs that are now worth nothing, I don't really participate in those communities, but maybe there are people who are less cynical out there. Yeah, there definitely are. But I think this is where you start to see why people are coming together in the first place. So Floor is actually a really interesting example where it started as first in NFT communities. We're kind of building in public together. And engagement in that group of people has, you know, increased because they're really interested in using the product and they have that thing that brings them together. I think inside of communities where the only reason to have it was financial speculation. Yeah, you've lost 100% of the thing you were there for. And so, yeah, why will people show up? But I think so a lot of projects have been washed out because people were there purely for the financial incentives. What other incentives are there? I think like at its core, 
NFT communities represent some kind of shared interest like any community that exists in the world. And so in Floor, that was very much an interest in seeing the product made and wanting to use that product. And now that group of people are more active than ever, giving us product feedback and telling us where they want new features and things like that. I think there are different degrees to which that's successful inside of the space. I think there's other things that just become communities in and of themselves. So I think Doodles is one of the ones that okay. even though their price action has been destroyed, actually the community is still pretty active and you know, mostly pretty positive. What do you think gives a project sticking power like that? It's a great question. I think on the financial side, I think a lot of it is so random. Like what sticks, what gets like a moment in time, what gets to some pinnacle at which point people believe it can go up. I think when you look at the things that aren't just the really big blue chip ones that are like 10, 20, whatever, what you tend to find is a core group of people inside of it that bring a group of people together around something. And then that thing grows organically over time. If you think about communities like Mike Dudas had one as a PFP for a little bit. And that was a really interesting one where it found its roots in technology. It found its root on it being really exciting that this thing was entirely on chain, entirely encapsulated. And it spawned a number of side projects off of it. And like when you think about if this is culture and community meeting tokenization, right now it's really only culture and community of like technology-oriented internet subcultures. And so I think a lot of them are about tech are about the underlying technology because those are the people that are using the thing to do the thing. It's like very um, self-propagating in that way right now. Yeah, and I think when you ask the question, you know, like who's doing it well, who has staying power, I think folks, like their minds automatically go to the PFP communities because those are the most visible. That's what people have as their profile picture. But there's actually a lot more depth there. Like there's pure art, right? Like the artist community, generative art in the space, right? Like, NFTs unlocks a generative art medium that is incredibly powerful, but you also get one of one art, edition art that like, I think gives royalties to creators in a way that they didn't have an option for before. I think you have communities beyond just art. You have, you know, the Jack Butchers, Opepins, Czechs of the world that are kind of like creating, you know, what they would like to say, a movement in the space that's like iterative, building in public. And then you have groups like the Nouns Dow and like... Yeah funding interesting things in the space as well. So like NounsDAO has built an amazing AI tool that like when you think of, okay, how do we progress? Like there's so much going on there. I think that it's like a miss to only think about PFP projects and say, okay, which profile picture is going to last here without talking about the fact that there are so many different types and categories of NFTs right now that like we miss out on. Yeah, and that brings you all the way to the flip side of that to art, which is like XNFTs and like new on-chain tools for building um, or backpacker building over on Solana, which, yeah, I think new formats like that are really exciting things to see coming out of the bear market because I think they're the frameworks that we're going to build. A lot of the stuff that back to your original question, like what's going to get things revitalized, it's stuff that's actually useful or fun for people. And so the more time that we spend building new layers and new fundamentals that help create on top of it, I think the better chance we have of things. And we're really excited about that stuff. Here's a message from our sponsor, CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a NASDAQ-listed company that mines Bitcoin. Basically, they build and operate data centers with tens of thousands of computers 
that help secure Bitcoin, making it more reliable and secure for anybody, anywhere to use. These computers require a lot of energy, but that's why CleanSpark predominantly uses low carbon energy to power their machines. But that's not all. They care about the communities where their data centers are located. They create jobs, donate to schools and community centers, and revitalize aging electricity grids in rural parts of America. They aren't just a Bitcoin miner. They're one of the most efficient and sustainable Bitcoin miners in America. Visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more. It seems like it's going to be um, multi-chain. Do you see different chains maybe solving for specific problems or certain projects having an affinity for a certain type of chain? Yeah, I think really it's simply it's it's easy to see like there's a generative art community emerging on Tezos with Solana. You have state compression and a whole bunch of technological advancements that makes running, storing, creating things on chain incredibly cheap. So like creators don't actually have to think about the cost to the user when they're making things. I think you'll see Gaming and applications live over there. Yeah, I think multi-chain is definitely the way that that will go. The same way that like in Web 2.0, you have AWS and you have Google Cloud and you have a few different like database providers that all do things slightly differently and they're easier for certain companies to use. Like I think that you'll see the same differentiation with blockchain as well. Yeah. Mm, that's the thing of Ethereum and like what Ethereum's ultimate place ends up being. And like the interesting thing is everyone complains about ETH gas prices. I actually think gas prices are probably the biggest feature that exists of Ethereum because it makes it slow and frictionful to transact. Made me rethink selling many an NFT. Seriously, <laughs> but like, you know, if it's 15 bucks to do anything, like firstly, you know, am I going to do if it? You're lucky second, if it's 15 bucks, if it's like 150 bucks. Right. And in order to do that, that thing has to be thousands of dollars. And so like, I actually think if tomorrow you took away gas fees, the Ethereum NFT market would go pretty far down pretty quickly. Mm. I think you know it's interesting to see even just the market efficiencies of Blur and what they've done to the market. What do you think of that market structure? I mean, it's interesting because Blur's incentive structure has done some really great things. It's created liquidity in a space where there wasn't guaranteed liquidity, mm -hmm. right? Like can buy NFT. It was truly, truly non-fungible. And you had to rely on someone wanting that exact thing Which to actually be able to buy it again. never would be the case. Right. And now with Blur, there is like pretty deep liquidity pools that exist for folks to be able to actually trade with a little bit less risk. I think the opposite side of that is that they've really blended what is traditionally institutional grade market making with retail trading, right? Mm. So like, one person is showing up and being a market maker, a similar person, same wallet structure, same entrant into the space has a totally different like reason for being there, reason for showing up. And they're both playing at the same level, which I don't know whether that's good or bad, but it's definitely novel. I think the assumptions you can normally make about market makers don't hold though. Right. So for example, I typically consider a market maker's incentives to be quite understandable. Mm -hmm. Whereas like Marky Big Brother, like he's probably not going to behave the same way that Jump might. He's just going to like throw 400 eights at the bid wall and like all of a sudden the market's completely different overnight. It is pretty interesting. Yeah. Mm. I think it's pushed us towards, you're talking about like we weren't at a place of like realistic price discovery maybe this time a year and a half ago. I think that having 
more institutional like liquidity out there does help with price discovery. So we're ending up at a place that is probably more realistic. It's an interesting point. So how do you see that evolve? I see the space fragmenting quite quickly. Mm. I think there'll be things that continue to exist for primarily financial reasons. And that'll be like probably the majority of things that have existed up till now. And, you know, people will continue to make art. People will continue to make PFP projects that like try to tie people together around high-priced assets. And I think for those, I do think NFTs will be largely fungible. At least mm. 78 collections will be largely fungible. They'll trade on a floor price basis. I think people will make more advanced markets that take some of that stuff into account. A lot of people are trying to build on-chain oracles for estimating values of assets and things like that. At that point, you can maybe make a little bit more of an efficient market there. But then I think there'll be very artisanal marketplaces for other things that you want to browse in completely different ways. And the choice of which one is highly personal. And maybe it may or may not be transacted at all. So I think the way that you choose, browse, discover those things will be quite different from category to category. I think for the most part, the like financial speculation assets probably does eventually degrade to blur-like trading experiences. Like it's just, it's so hard to put the lid back on that because it is an efficient market structure and people are going to keep doing it as long as it's arbitrage we have in it. What do you think underpins the value? We've talked a lot about speculation, and I remember doing the more go-go heady days of the NFT boom. I would ask a lot of folks who came on the show, like, how would you delineate the characteristics that add to the value of an NFT? Community was one of them. Aesthetics, you know, memetics or meme economics, you can call it as well. What are they now and and how have they changed? As in your view, the space has become less speculative. What are those defining characteristics that make NFTs distinguish the uh, wheat from the shaft? I think there's some similar things. I still think when you think about PFPs in particular, they're virtue signaling. They're telling the world that you're part of something first. And I think the things that make those valuable are the things that make it obvious to a viewer that you paid more than the average person in that collection for it, unfortunately. And even as that rattles up and down, the relative price, like this is why you see a lot of collections have very simple traits, like laser eyes or like crowns or like gold coating or whatever. You know, you know that if you have a gold version of that thing, that's like one of the more rare and premium ones. And it's like fostering inside of communities. And I still see a lot of that happening even as the prices come down, the relative prices inside of those collections do that. I think outside of PFPs, it's entirely different. Yeah. And I think that, like, again, we will probably get to a place where value and price are two separate things, Mm. where we may not even have price discovery or price action on NFTs because the inherent nature of them is not something that's like, okay, I'm going to go trade this in the market and I'm going to buy it thinking it's going to go up. It has like one specific thing that it does. It provides you access to something. I think that like, especially as brands think about coming into the space and like you've started to see some brands experiment. I don't think we've actually seen any brand like dive head first into Web3 quite yet. But as they experiment, you know, the Starbucks of the world, like I think they are looking for something that is more around value and access rather than price. Because I think having something on an open market that, 
someone else can dictate the price of makes it hard for them to actually like associate their brand with it. Mm, yeah. I think there's a very good chance in the long term that we see something a little bit more like, you know, 95% of these are non transactional in nature. Yeah. Like whether they're transferable or not, they're just like not necessarily designed for financial purposes. And then a lot of those will exist in ecosystems that do have fungible tokens that are kind of a piece of, so like, think about the different tools you have in building a Web3 community. You have like NFTs, you have ERC20 tokens. And I think right now you see this very either or orientation. I think in time, you'll probably see a, a fluid combination thereof that drives membership, identity, and kind of financial participation a little bit separately. Mm, well said. What do you make of what, Starbucks is doing. I love that they're doing something. So like I've definitely participated, like I'm a member and have bought some of the NFTs just like out of curiosity. I think we have a long way to go in terms of figuring out how to present a UX to users that makes sense and that, you know, is worth the steps you have to take for what you get out of the other side. Mm. And I think it's Starbucks 10 years to build a great mobile memberships program. Yeah. I need to download the app because apparently you get free refills if you have the app. I didn't know that. Mm. That's separate from the NFT thing. It's hard for brands to jump in with both feet because the products that we have available for the consumers they would bring, right? They already have users. And mm. the question that they're trying to figure out is, do I point my users who trust me at this thing? Mm. And when you say, yeah, point them at this thing, they're going to have to download a Chrome extension. They're going to have to write down 16 words, but don't actually write them down anywhere. But also, like, they're absolutely critical that you never lose them. Like, you create this, this onboarding process that is, like, near impossible for anyone to actually achieve. And then you enter into a totally fragmented space by design, right? There's a lot of benefits to that fragmentation, but, like, you essentially send your users off into the Wild West. And mm. I think that a lack of consumer-grade products that put users first and not put, like, the tooling and the underlying, like, okay, blockchain first, like, without that evolution, we're not going to see a lot of brands actually dive in. I think there's a lot of this that you can look at regulation for as well. So mm -hmm. right now, like, the reason we have these two sides of this extreme, one is go get your 12 words, your words, like write this thing down, get the Fox thing. And then all the way on the other side is, oh, cool, you want one point worth a penny? Okay, mm. well, here's the KYC process. Rotate your head into 18 different dimensions and make sure that we've got like a full biometric snapshot, which is like also not, not really a, a great <laughs> yeah. onboarding. You know, a lot of that comes from just regulatory unclarity. People are scared to act in a way that someone won't tell them is completely safe. Right now, the only way to say that is either you're on your own, you go do this like crazy thing, or here is an entire KYC craziness kind of thing on the other side. You guys are making a bit of a push into social elements. How do you yeah. see that future shaping up? Like, to what degree do NFTs play a role in? I mean, we saw Facebook kind of step back a bit, Instagram step back, Twitter, you get blue, you can have your NFT, PFP. How do you see those sort of worlds intersecting? Kind of what we talked about a moment ago with the relationship between NFTs and ERC-20s. And I think NFTs will be remembered as their primary use case is membership. And sometimes that membership is 
a tradable, sellable, like financially valuable membership. And other times it's just credentialing and identity and those other things. Mm. So I think fundamentally your NFTs represent your interests, the places you belong, the groups you spend time with. And I think taking that and using that as a framework for a place you spend time to do things together is inherently interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that particularly, and I think this is where the state today actually really helps us. People actually love to win together, but they also love to lose together. And so I think even as today, which, you know, I, I think we hope isn't the whole market forever, it's highly financially speculative. I just think coming together to do that together in the groups that you've already self-opted into by being members of the same collective is actually a really powerful and interesting thing to do. And if you're getting started, it's frankly the only safe way to do it. Like trying to orient yourself today is incredibly hard. And so we hope to give you a set of tools, but also an ability to connect with a community of people who are trying to do the same stuff in a safe way so that you can figure out, you know, where you should potentially try and go spend some time and potentially spend some money. So what should we expect next from you guys? What's in the pipe? It's been a busy few months. We acquired WGMI in January. Um, They're an advanced trading platform, and then we're pulling in a lot of their features into the app. We announced we were a launch partner with Coinbase as they rolled out their wallet product. So hints at us building wallet functionality for users in the app. And then yesterday we announced support for Solana. So we've been mostly ETH focused over the last year and a half and are now expanding into multiple ecosystems. Is that how long it's been? A year and a half? It's crazy, right? Holy hell. I mean, I was looking at how long I've been at the block and it's like unbelievable. (laughs) Half a decade. But outside of those things, like I think we're just getting started the next few months. You know, we have social features that are rolling out as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just started the username claim process a few weeks ago, which is really cool. Like, I still feel like anytime we build anything, I always launch it. And I'm like, I hope someone cares. I hope like one person does this. And we've been super fortunate today in that we have kind of a core community who are incredibly supportive and jump straight into everything. But then also with usernames, got a lot of outside interest that claiming their little bits of the full world and have already had 25,000 people come and claim their full usernames. We're going to roll out the first ways to start using those in the next six weeks, which I'm really excited about. But kind of seeing people come in and try and protect their Twitter name, as well as taking advantage of the ability to, you know, join a namespace early and claim at Frank, as opposed to, you know, having to have something else. I still don't have at Christine. Who has it? So because the person on Twitter who has at Christine has a certain amount of followers, we aren't opening it up for available claim. Like we're making sure that people who actually have a following can't be impersonated. So I think like in the coming two or three weeks, it'll open up and I hope I'm quick draw on the button there. Can't you do something on the back end and just... Can the devs do something? Can the devs do something? We like playing by the same rules as our users. So I am not at Chris. And yeah. Chris is actually Mr. Beast's producer and best friend, I think, on Twitter. So like, I'm pretty sure I'm never really going to be able to get at Chris. But we've gotten a lot of questions about this. So we're creating a new namespace. We spent a long time trying to figure out how to protect it, which is a mixture of, you know, you can prove it with Twitter handles, you can prove it with ENS ownership. You know, there's certain ability for our early token holders to burn tokens in order to claim them. And now we're kind of gradually building models and heuristics to understand, does someone claiming this account present impersonation risk? Does it present platform risk? 
So I think this is something that honestly everyone else has done really badly and has created kind of cesspooly online communities because of, you know, problems like that. And particularly as you think about a social network that sits really close to transactions, you just want to make sure that you're stopping that stuff. Yeah, 100%. Well, guys, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Where can folks learn more about what you're working on? Where can they find you on the internet? They can't find you at Christine or at Chris, but somewhere else. At Floor on Twitter, follow along with everything that we're doing. I'm at Christine underscore Hall. And I'm at Chris Matter. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much. Always a pleasure. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.